Heavenly Father, the greatest need of the hour, indeed the day, the week, the month, the year, our lives, is that we would hear from you and know you through your word. We need to see your great mercy and grace through the gospel. And today, as we begin this series, Father God, I pray that you would help us hear your word with clarity. Remove any error from my mouth. Remove any, anything that is of the flesh, Father God. Remove that, and may you speak clearly through your scriptures, and may your name be magnified and glorified in our presence. Father, we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus alone. Amen. So today we do begin a new series. You've heard that a few times already, and we're calling it Church Children of the Living God. That's the, the kind of the banner under which everything we're going to do for the next five weeks, God willing, will sit under. Um, and, and based on that, you probably have a really good idea where we're headed today. Uh, my hope for this series is, is really every week to just ask a very simple question, a very basic question, and that is this, what is church? What is church? What does it mean to be a part of the group of people we call church? And we, I think we, I tend to have a lot of answers that I bring to the table with this question that I've received from my own traditions, that I've received from my own experience. Um, but what I really want to do here is, is ask God, what is church? What does the Bible say about church? And when we ask him, what is his answer? What, what is the clarity that we get from the word? Um, and so, God willing, I'd like to ask the same question, like I said, for the next few weeks. Um, and when contemplating how we might begin this series, um, one passage of Scripture constantly came up in my mind, and uh, I want to start with this one. It's in 1 John chapter 3, very short, just one verse I want to look at here. Um, and so this is the Apostle John who's writing to um, the church, and he is making a profound, simple statement about what the church is fundamentally, like what is the most basic understanding of the church, and this is where I want to begin. So 1 John 3 verse 1 says this, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now what John is saying here is that the kind of love that God has given us, his church, isn't a vague kind of love. It's not a generic kind of love. It's not even the kind of love that he has for the entire world, which he does love. The kind of love that he has here is special. It's unique. It is the kind of love that a father has given to his own children. That's the magnitude of God's love for us. And you can feel, even in his language here, how stunning this is for him, how he sets up his sentence. It's almost as though he's saying, this should not be. We should not be children of God, but we are. And it is astonishing to him. And we know how this happens. It, earlier in the Gospel of John, the same apostle wrote in chapter 1, verse 12 of the Gospel, he says, how we became children of God. How did that happen? What, what was our experience like when that happened? And he says here, John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, that is, receive Jesus Christ, 
who believed in his name, he, God, gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God. And so John says the right to become children of God is only given to those who receive Jesus Christ, those who believe in the name of Jesus, those who are, according to this passage, born of God. And he makes this clear. He doesn't want there to be any ambiguity here, so he stresses out the clarity. This is not like being born of blood or being born biologically or in the world naturally. This is not like being born of the will of the flesh. This is not the same thing as as uh, someone naturally coming to the, the understanding of Jesus and the gospel through their own desires and, um, and uh, attitude. This isn't also like being born of the will of man, which is to say this is not a decision that causes people to be born. It's not a decisional thing that happens. Um, none of these are what John is talking about here. John is talking about a powerful, supernatural experience where God brings about what's referred to in the scriptures as the new birth, being born again, where he transforms someone who is rebellious and who's a sinner and who doesn't want God to somebody who does want God and, in fact, transforms them into a child of God, a son or a daughter. And the source of it is right there in 1 John, the first passage we looked at, this powerful love of God. That's why God grants us this right. He, he loves us so deeply. And this is the foundation of the church. This is the most basic understanding of the church. And we see this reality throughout the entire New Testament. And there's one word that describes the event in which God engrafts somebody into his family. There's one word that in the New Testament constantly describes the transformation of a sinner into a son or daughter, and that word is adoption. It is the word adoption. And this is a word that you are all no doubt familiar with. Um, adoption is simply how someone who belongs to another family biologically becomes part of a family that was not originally theirs. They are grafted in. And so if your faith is in Christ, if you trust Jesus, if you've received him, like the Gospel of John said, then you belong to the church and therefore you have been adopted by God. He's your father. And you are in his family as a child. And that is an astonishing reality. Your identity is all wrapped up in him, his identity, who he is. And this spiritual reality of adoption is, like I said, engaged throughout all of Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Galatians 3 and 4 talks about the profound freedom that we have as children of God through adoption. Romans 8 tells us that all of God's children are led by His Spirit, and therefore they are heirs with Christ Jesus. They are the recipients of the inheritance that God the Father has. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul is quoting uh, passages from the Old Testament, and he says, quoting God of the church, God says, I will be a father to you, 
and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And Paul says, when God said this in the Old Testament, he was talking about the church. He was talking about you, Corinthian church, you, risen hope. And so it's without dispute that this aspect of his children being the church is fundamental to our understanding of being the church broadly. This is us being in his family is synonymous with us being in the church. The church only consists of people who are God's children, which means something profound. And this is, it sounds less profound than it really is. And so our time today will be spent drilling down how deep this goes, how profound this really is. We are in a family together. We are in a family together. This is amazing. We are not just in a family together as part of what it means to be a Christian. We are in a family together because that's the main thing. That's the main reality of our Christianity as as it's expressed in the world. And so what I would like us to do is humbly ask, really at the beginning of this series, what does our family look like? What does this family that we are now part of look like? What should we be doing? How should we act in the family of God? If he's really our father, like really our father, I mean really our father in ways that our biological father isn't, how should we act? How should we live? What should we be? And so to do that, I want us to turn now to Acts 2, the second chapter in Acts, the beginning of the first few pages of this book, beginning with first Verse 42 is where we're going to start reading, but uh, before we even read it, and it's up on the screen now, so you're already reading it, but before, <laughs> that's my bad. Before we even read it, um, I, I want to set the stage for you to get your mind in the right spot. So Jesus, in the Gospels and in the beginning of the book of Acts, he's already died and he's rose from the dead. And just days earlier, before the event we're about to read, he has ascended to the the heavens to the right hand of God, of his Father. But to Jesus, God is a different kind of Father than he is to us because Jesus isn't adopted. I don't mean he treats us differently. I mean Jesus has always had God as his Father from all eternity. Jesus is, the theological terminology is eternally begotten, In other words, there was never a time where Jesus did not exist, and there was never a time where God wasn't his father, and he wasn't one with his father. That has always been, which is staggering in and of itself. But when Jesus enters the world, he enters the world as God's son. So Jesus has always been in God's family, and just before the passage we're about to read, Christ returned to the father and having accomplished all the work that his father gave him, has his disciples huddled up in a city praying for God to come, praying for the promise that God made, that Jesus made to them of the Holy Spirit. So these disciples are huddled in this city, Jerusalem, during the time of Pentecost. They are praying for God to come, and something astonishing happens. He does. And he comes with great power. The Holy Spirit falls powerfully on these disciples, and it leads to utter chaos in the city. 
And in response to this, Peter, one of the disciples, preaches a sermon about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus from Psalm 16. And when he does that, 3,000 human beings are, it says, cut to the heart. And they plead with Peter and the disciples, what shall we do? And Peter responds very simply, repent and be baptized. And in this one moment, the church is born. A family comes into existence. This is the first real manifestation of the body of believers that will eventually in Acts be called the church. These 3,000 people in a moment go from sinner to child of God. And uh, this is the family of God. Though this family has existed in some way or, or shape throughout the ages, this is the first time that it has been known as this, church. This is the family of God. In Greek, the word church is ecclesia. Some of you guys may know that. Ecclesia is interesting. It means in and of itself, gathering, assembly, congregation, a very mundane sort of terminology. But the language here is, is, is interesting because in the Greek, ecclesia is formed from two words. Ek, which means out of, and kaleo, which means to call. And so what that means is that when we say ecclesia, or when we say church, we are meaning that they are a people that have been called out of a larger group of people. They've been called out of the world and called into a family, the family of God, which is what the church is. So the church is right at the start. It's not a building. Church is not a building. The church is not an event at the beginning of the week. The church is a people who have been called out of the world and into God's family. And so what happens next in the book of Acts is a picture of the church, day one, ground zero, at the very beginning of everything. This is what God's family looks like. This is what they look and sound like right at the very beginning of their creation. So verse 42 tells us, you can put it up now. <laughs> verse 42 all right, it says, And they, meaning the 3,000 believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings in distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's the first snapshot of this family that we have in Scripture. Now, before we assume immediately that everything here is exactly what God desires for the church in every single age, we need to recognize there are no commands of God in this text. Not in this text. 
maybe in other places of the Bible there are, not in this passage. This passage is simply a description of what happened. It's not a, an imperative of what we should always do. Nevertheless, nevertheless, given that this is the origin of the church and given that these actions are never questioned, they are never challenged, they are never corrected, all of the rest of the New Testament, but rather every page corroborated and commended as true and right and good, it seems clear that what we read here at the very least about the church, about God's family, is worth us as the church carefully considering and seriously asking, is this what church means to us? Is this how we think about church? In other words, do we have thoughts or ideas of church or even activities inside the church that don't look like this at all or are so far removed from this experience that this, when we read this, it looks alien to us. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't actually look real because this is the church. I mean, this is church day one. This is what God's family looked like. And so do we look like this at all? Do we act like this? Do we have this same reality with us? And I think what becomes extremely clear in just this passage, these few verses, is that the word family is not just a word. It has meaning in this text. Family means something in Acts 2. It really does. These people live and treat each other like family. This is a real family. There's no other way to explain their behavior, their interactions, the way they relate to each other. This, these people belong to each other in a way that only can be described by the word family. A family more real, really, if I'm honest with you, than anything else we experience in the world like this. And in this passage, Luke, the author of Acts, presents kind of like a constellation of different behaviors, actions, relationships that comprise and define and express this family. And we see, I think, two, three main categories, three main areas that we can divide up these actions. And I want to look at them briefly and try to understand how this applies to us. So the first is very clear. This family was devoted to God, their father. They were devoted to God. And we can see this as early as the verse 42, it says, this family devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers, which very simply means that they talked to their father. They spent time talking to him. And to sit under the word of God, read it, receive it, hear it preached, is to hear our Father, to pray to God is how we talk to our Father. There's a conversation going on here, and it is rooted in a loving relationship between a child and their father. And so let's stop for a second and just think about this in our own lives. When you read the Word of God, which is everything that the apostles taught, do you know that your Father in heaven is talking to you in that moment? Like he's talking to you. This is God talking to you. To sit under God's word when it is received in hearing or taught faithfully is to hear the very words of God that, get this, were inspired with you and your situation that you're going through right now 
in mind. God was not ignorant to when you would hear this. He knew it and he inspired it for those reasons, as many as they are in the world. It is a stunning thing to consider that God has not been silent. He's spoken. This book is for you, each of you, all of you together. It is for us. And he desires us to know who he is, and he desires us to know who we are in this family. So do we see this as that kind of book? Or do we see it as just a, an, another book? Like It's an important book, obviously. Um, but if someone were to come to us and judge its significance in our own lives by our actions, not by our words, what would they walk away with? And prayer. Do we really know what prayer is? Is prayer central to our lives? Think about this. He's not only our Father. He is an omniscient, omnipotent God who created all things, sustains all things, and is sovereign over all things, and yet he desires to hear the voice of his children. He wants you to talk to him. And this is hard to believe, but this is real. He is more ready and willing to hear you than you will ever be of him. He desires to speak to his kids. He desires to hear from his kids. There's no one in the world like that. We, like, nobody in the world like that wants to hear us more than we want you know, the, the opposite. Um, do we recognize this in our lives? Is prayer central to our day? Or do we relegate it to a corner of our lives? And if we were to judge our devotion to our Father just by not what we said to people about how much we loved Him, but by how often we actually talked to Him, what would the assessment be? What would people walk away with? Would they say, yeah, he's really devoted, she's really devoted to their father, or would they say something else? Luke uh, continues with this concept of being devoted to God in verse 46 and 47 when he says, this family attended the temple together and they praised God. In other words, they gathered for corporate worship, which is what this is today. God may be their father, but he is still the creator and sustainer of the universe and the savior of their souls, and he deserves to be honored and worshiped and magnified. He deserves their complete devotion. So corporate worship is what we see here. Worshiping together, being with each other, singing to God, speaking God's word to one another, fellowshipping as brothers and sisters for encouragement. This is essential to our family. Corporate worship wasn't added to the side of Christianity, like a, a nice-to-have. It is at the heart of what it means to be family, is to meet in worship. To not worship God corporately is to not know him as father, and to not know the brothers and sisters that are around you in the faith as brothers and sisters. But that's not all he says. So n- number two is this. That was the first one. Devotion to God. Number two is this. This was a family devoted to each other. Number two, a family devoted to each other. Verse 42 says that they were devoted to the fellowship, which meant they enjoyed time with each other. They met with each other. They lived alongside each other. They even broke bread with one each other. So it's not just seeing somebody in passing. There was 
the intimacy of eating meals with each other, which is what families do. And we know this because the act of eating the meal with someone you, you care about and you love is more than simply consuming food. God has designed the meal, and you see this throughout the New Testament. It's a glorious thing. The process by which we are nourished physically is also the backdrop through which God nourishes our souls when we share it with people we love. This is what meals are. There's something magical. There's something divine about it because when people open their mouths to eat food, for some reason, they lower the guard of their hearts and they want to talk about things and they want to enjoy each other's company. And so deep relationships form through meals, through eating together. This is why this passage in the New Testament in general labors over this aspect. Verse 46 continues to say this. Day by day they attended temple and were breaking bread together in their homes with glad, generous hearts. This is a family. This is a family. Fundamentally, this isn't just like Sunday. This is, this is a pervasive reality of brothers and sisters getting together and loving and caring for each other. I mean, I like the way verse 44 puts it very simply, and all who believed were together. Together. All who believed. Now, this doesn't mean they shared the same house or they lived in the same location, like some commune, uh, you know, somewhere else. <laughs> um, that doesn't mean this, um, but it does mean that they, they were very open to sharing their home with other people, inviting people in, saying, I want to throw a meal for you. I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. And, and I, I'm really grateful to God. I mean, our church, by God's grace, this is how Risen Hope began. It was a group of people that came together, and that group, God faithfully grew and grew and grew. It was a dinner group. We just ate food and spent time with each other, and God continued to grow and has grown it into a church. And now there are multiple groups that meet and do the same thing, and God willing, in those groups, the same glorious power of God is being exerted to grow deep relationships with each other over food and fellowship. Simple acts. These things are not trivial. They're not nice to have. They're not like if we can get to them. They are, I mean, according to this text, essential to the church. It's something that they devoted themselves to. Devoted. Like that's not a word you use for something you want to get to if you've got time. Devoted themselves to it. So I, I can't oversell this, and I don't think I need to. You, we all know this is that true church is more than hanging out on Sunday um, or a Bible study, as good as, as those are, because church is family. That's number two. So more than devotion to God, more than devotion to each other, there is one key aspect to this text in addition to those things, and that is this, devotion to meeting the needs of others. This is what defined this family. Devotion to meeting the needs of others. Verse 44 says they were together and all had all things in common and then explains what that means. These believers, would they were open to selling their own possessions and they did that to give to anyone who was in need. 
first in the family, and then it's clear in the rest of Scripture to anybody that was in need in their community. That's what this family did. It didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you came from. If you were part of this family, your needs were taken care of. Acts 4.34 even says, when it represents the same reality, says that no one was in need. There was not a single person in the church that was without, that was without being taken care of. They were all cared for. Now, having all things in common, just for clarification, doesn't mean that they didn't own individual possessions. We see that they each had houses here. But what it means is that their possessions did not own them. And that is a fundamental difference. The family was more important to them than their stuff. Their family was more essential to them than what they owned such that every single need in this family would be met even if it cost someone something that they owned and loved and cared about. If it meant someone could be taken care of, they were willing to part with it. This is a radical, I mean a radical, sacrificial kind of generosity that I'm going to be honest, does not make sense in the world in which we live. I think we talk a lot about this kind of generosity But we live in a, I mean, the West in general is a comfort-dominated sphere of community. Like there's, there's sacrifice, I mean, real meaningful sacrifice in our culture is a four-letter word. And this kind of generosity is radical in the face of that. Um, This wasn't an an effort to make everyone equal. I just want to make sure this is clear. It wasn't an effort to make everyone equal or to make things fair because even that effort focuses on ownership of property. This was an assault on poverty through radical generosity no one will want in this community. And it's not a desire to have the certain amount of possessions, it's a desire to say, these possessions do not have me. I belong to this family. And so this was the church at the very beginning. These three pictures are a snapshot. And again, there's no command in this text There's no mandate from God. If it's a mandate, there's no question. So we look at this and we ask what's going on here. I think one of the reasons why this is so compelling is that it isn't a command. This is what they do naturally after seeing God as their father. This is their first few steps. It's almost like it's in their DNA, their new DNA. They didn't just do these things either. They were devoted to them. That's Luke's own word. It even says that while they were doing these things, God was pleased to do great signs and wonders to show that his presence was with them, to validate that their actions weren't just some sort of artificial thing. But even more amazing than the signs and wonders here is that, A, they had favor with all people. That's a miracle. And B, it says their numbers were being added to by God daily, those who were being saved. And I'll trade 10,000 miracles for those eternities shifting to be with God forever. So here's the question. Why is this in our Bibles? Why do we have Acts 2, 42 through 47? Is it for a history lesson? Is it uh, just so that we have a record of how things began, but now we do things a little bit differently? Is that what God was thinking when he inspired Luke to write this? Or is it in our Bible because God wants us to see, in fact, he wants the church to see in every single generation, 
something that we need to be reminded of, how it actually began. And it's clear that this is not some organization that was created artificially. This wasn't some cleverly devised strategy for generosity, as good as those things are, if they're effective and they, they prove to be true and right. This was a family. This was a real family. So it's possible, if not likely, that we have this in our Bibles because God explicitly desires for every generation to be reminded that this is how the church was at the beginning. This is what they were devoted to at the start. But even knowing that, let's say that we all agree that at, at, with that at face value. Even knowing that, another question now emerges. And that's this. We would all agree that nothing in this passage is bad. In fact, all of it is good. Being devoted to God is good. Being devoted to each other is good. Being devoted to generosity is good. Everybody agrees with that and knows that it's important. This is what it means to be a Christian. I mean, it's throughout the entire narrative of Scripture. But is that agreement in word alone sufficient? Or does that agreement need to have a place of dominance in our lives, in our actions, in our attitudes? Um, this didn't happen because the, the Christians in Acts 2 made a bunch of lists or created a bunch of programs or tried to develop some sort of way to create this. This happened from a change that occurred in the depths of their heart. They knew something about what it meant to be in God's family. They knew something about what it meant to be children of God. And so the question I think this text poses for us, whether we're consistent or inconsistent with this, every time we look at it is, do we really know what it means to be in the family of God? Do we really understand it? Do we understand the weight of it? Do we understand the gravity of it? To have, being, to have been adopted into the family of God, a family that will exist forever. That's this family. Do we know what that means? I think there's a way in which we can understand a spiritual reality as true. And we can agree with it, we can assent to it, we can understand it, yet that reality does not have the grip on our hearts that it should. It doesn't have the weight on our hearts that it should. And I think sometimes adoption into God's family is like that. We understand the word, we understand the title, but it is not staggering to us that that's a reality. It's not shocking to us that that's a reality and all the implications that flow from this. And so what I want to do with our last few minutes is this. I want to look very closely at a passage in Ephesians 1, three verses, Ephesians 1 starting with verse 3, which will not only show us how it came to pass that our adoption was a reality, a possibility, a thing that God achieved. And it will show us why being adopted into the family of God is such an incredible reality and should speak into every aspect of our lives. Ephesians 1, verse 3. <coughs> We're going to read through verse 6. Here it is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Easily one of the most exalted passages in Scripture, at least as far as I'm concerned, this whole section of Ephesians 1. And Paul begins by a blessing toward God. He is opening this letter with a, a, a blessing toward the Father of Christ Jesus, who is our own Father by adoption, but he hasn't gotten to that yet. Paul says that this Father, the one that he's blessing, has actually blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I want you to think. What could that include? He puts no limits on this. Every spiritual blessing. And the way I interpret those three words is that there is no eternal good, there is no eternal good that I will be denied by my Father. Every spiritual blessing will be mine. And the reason that is the case with us is verse 4 says, God chose us, you and I, in his Son Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, before the universe was created. This word world is cosmos. He's talking about all of created reality. This event happened before there was anything other than God. It says he chose us then, though knowing we would be a sinner, though knowing what we would do, though knowing we would be a rebel, and his desire here is that we would spend eternity with him, completely free of every sin in his presence. That's what it means to say, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He's talking about where we will be for all eternity in the presence of, of God, our Father. And if we were to stop here, that's worthy of many hours of contemplation. I could, we could have a series on just that sentence. But Paul doesn't stop here. He continues and he says that God did this because he loves us. God did this, originated from God's love, in love. He was not constrained by an outside force to do this. No one forced God to love you. It was a free love, free choice. He loved us. And it says in verse 5 that God predestined us, this is the outworking of his love, for adoption to himself through Jesus which means he didn't leave anything for chance. He didn't leave anything for circumstance. He saw it and he made it happen. And he did that through his son, Jesus Christ. And what that means is knowing that he would have to do it through Jesus meant that he knew that we would sin and we would do things to prevent adoption. He knew choosing us in before the foundation of the world that we would need to be, have our sin paid for and have our sin atoned for. He knew the cross was necessary. And he knew that 
the only one who could do this, pay for that sin, was his only begotten son. That was the cost for our adoption. This is the price of adoption, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's how much it cost him, and this is an extraordinary cost. Yet, stunningly, this passage continues to tell us that it was according to the purpose of his will, which we need to sit with for a second here. God desired to do this. He desired for you to be in his family. It is according to the purpose of his will. No one told him he needed to do this. He did it on his own. Now, why is this important for us to know? Why is this passage here in our Bibles? What is Ephesians 1 telling us about this this event? Ephesians 1 tells us that before creation, God already had a plan for a family. He had a family. And then he moves through history with great power to secure, redeem, and bring into existence this family through adoption. And it only happened through the work of Christ Jesus. It only happened through the cross. So the cross wasn't an afterthought. God didn't come up with the cross. A bird just hit the window. <laughs> Sorry, bird. <laughs> it looked like he, he, he was flying away, so I think he's okay. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, man. Okay. I have no idea where I am now. Um, um, yeah, so the cross wasn't an afterthought. The cross was not something that God came up with when things fell apart. God knew about the cross. Jesus went to the cross knowing everything that we would do, knowing everything that we would do, and he did it to bring us, to graft us into God's family specifically. And this is a family, according to this passage, who will be with God the Father forever, praising the glory of his grace. And here's the deal. With Ephesians 1, we need, as the church, as the family, to feel this. So I want you to take a second and and look around this room. Just look around. And look at these fellow believers around you. You will be with each other for unending ages. There won't be an end. We are family forever. This family is more real and more ultimate than any other family in the world because this family is never going to end. We will be with each other eating at the, the table in heaven with each other for all eternity. And this is the reason these believers in Acts acted the way that they did. They knew the gravity. They knew the weightiness of what it meant to be adopted. They, they, they lived in that weightiness um, of the adoption into God's family by devoting themselves to everything that they knew that they needed to be devoted in. Not as coercion, but because this is who they were. They knew in their hearts what it meant to be loved by God in this way. God's love for them, according to this passage, never had a beginning. He never started to love them. He always has loved them. And that means his love will never end. 
this family is secure forever. And this kind of love, when you let it embrace your life, when it controls your desires and your actions and your attitudes, this love will ignite a devotion to God. It will, devo- it will ignite a devotion to God. Why would we spend our time on this earth plinking away at TV, at video games, at football, at all of this stuff, if our Bibles are going unread? And if we, we haven't spent, there's been a week since we've actually gotten on our knees and asked, talked to God. This love ignites devotion to each other. Why would we, or because in, de, in devotion to each other, it is a staggering thing. Think about this. It is a staggering thing to share a meal with someone now, looking them in the eyes across the dinner table, who you know will be with you 10,000 ages into the future. That is a staggering thing. And this love ignites a devotion to sacrificially meeting needs because the treasure of being in our Father's presence forever with each other is greater than anything this world can offer us. Anything in this world that we could see and like is infinitely less valuable than being with God and being with our family forever. We desperately need to know this love. We need to know what those believers in Acts 2 knew. What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to be a daughter of God? This is the foundation of what it means to be the church. And so in a few moments, we're going to be worshiping God through the act of the Lord's Supper, communion, um, which is fitting to do because it is according to the work of Christ that we actually have adoption. His body and his blood, these elements that we'll receive, paid for the adoption. They purchased the adoption that God had planned from the very beginning. What I want us to do is as we receive these elements, as we sing, as we reflect on just this passage in God's word today, ask these things. What does it mean to us to be a child of God? Plead with God to work in your hearts to help you understand and embrace that, not just intellectually, but experientially in your heart, in your soul. What does it mean to be in his family? That needs to change our lives. We, we, we need to be blown away by the staggering reality that despite the great cost it was to God for our adoption, he has secured it, made it happen, and we are now in a family that will never come to an end. We need to let that change us. And this happened according to the purpose of his will, which means that he did this because he loved us. This was his love being shown. And so I want to close with this passage again from 1 John. And I hope that we can hear it with new eyes. And it's this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, to you and me. That astonishingly, we should be called children of the living God. And yet... We are. Let's pray. Father God, every, every time we look into your word, every time we look into your word, we see 
things that our minds cannot fully comprehend or understand. And what we need is your grace to come and meet us. Open the eyes of our hearts to this remarkable truth that since we've received Christ Jesus and we believe in his name, like John 1 tells us, we are now children of the living God. And we are in a family surrounded by brothers and sisters who will be with us forever. Help us understand that reality. Help us embrace that reality. Help it get deep down into our hearts where all sorts of things exist that have kept us from living this out. And I ask that by your grace, Father God, because of the work that Christ has already done to, to get us into this family through adoption, that you would continue to work the reality of adoption into the depths of our souls so that Acts 2, 42 through 47 isn't something we read about. It is something we are in every way, Father. And I'm thankful for these people who in so many ways embody this already, Father God. I ask that you would invite us deeper and further into this reality and that your name would be magnified and glorified. In the name of Jesus, amen.